You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The Coney Beach Pleasure Park in Porth Cal Wales looks like a nice place to visit if you're a fan of grim seaside amusement parks. And really, no one does grim seaside amusement parks like the Brits do. Or you could visit the Porth Call Museum if you enjoy small town museums with military artifacts. Or maybe you'd prefer to visit the ruins of nearby Ogmore Castle, which are almost a thousand years old. But if you want to have sex in Porth Call, you're going to need to get a room. And the restrooms in Porth Call's Griffin Park don't count. You are not allowed to have sex in there, which hasn't stopped some people which is why the town is planning to install new public conveniences at great public expense, toilets that sound like they were designed by the same team that makes cars and fountain pens for James Bond. According to CNN, congrats, Porthcall, you made the international news. According to CNN, Porthcall's new public toilets will have motion and weight sensors. And if more than one person enters or if the toilet is occupied for too long or if the state-of-the-art motion sensors in the toilet detect violent activity, shit goes down. Basically, if Porthcall's non-portable potties are a-rockin', the consequences come a-knockin'. Occupants will be sprayed with cold water, alarms will sound, and the doors will fly open. All these high-tech toilets, according to a Porthcall official, will ensure that Porthcall remains a great place to live, work, and visit. But not a great place to have a quick shag in public restroom, and not a great place to be a disabled person, as many have pointed out on social media. You know, someone who might enter the toilet on a heavy wheelchair and rock it around a little bit or have to take a little bit longer. Now, personally, I have never understood the appeal of getting it on in a public toilet. Some people do it because it's the only place they've got. What they're doing and who they're doing are the turn-on, not where they're doing it. But some people really enjoy what the Brits call cottaging, messing around in cruisy public toilets in the middle of the night. Mostly men people who like to mess around with other men people. And they're mostly straight-identified men people, and you don't have to take my word for that. Just check out the scandalized news reports after a bust in a public sex environment. The police are always shocked, shocked by the numbers of married men, married to women men they arrested, along with the numbers of priests, and I always love this detail, upstanding members of the community, who weren't standing up when they got caught, most likely. It was hard to read about Porthcall's new toilets without banging my head on poor Ann Lander's desk. Conservatives in the UK have imposed a decade-long austerity program. According to a report from the UN, cuts to public services in the UK since 2010 have resulted in, quote, tragic social consequences. More children and old people now live in abject poverty, and it's only getting worse. But there's plenty of money for high-tech toilets. We can have children living in poverty, but we can't have men giving each other blowjobs in the middle of the night in an otherwise deserted public restroom. And excuse me, but... Don't the good people of Wales who voted against leaving the EU have more important things to worry about just now than blowjobs, like crashing out of the EU at the end of October? A leaked government report says there will be severe food and medicine shortages in the UK if it crashes out of the EU, the hard Brexit, which is right now the plan. And it's blowjobs that are keeping people up at night? Now, in fairness to the good people of Porthcall, a lot of the people who've objected to these new toilets are 
Porth callers, Porth callees, Porth callinians, I don't know. And the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be getting a blowjob someplace somewhere they shouldn't prompts a lot of people to act like idiots all over the world. The police in Washington, D.C. just spent buttloads of public money conducting a sting operation last week that targeted a cruisy public park. From the reports, the police engaged in what sounds like pre-Stonewall-style entrapment with undercover cops propositioning gay men in the park for consensual sex elsewhere and then arresting them if they agreed. And in Florida recently, the police arrested 13 men for having sex in closed rooms in a dirty bookstore video arcade on the grounds that these men were, quote, publicly exposing their genitals. In a video arcade, you had to buy a ticket to enter with a door that you closed behind you. I don't think it's any coincidence that we're seeing an uptick in this sort of shit. The world is spinning out of control. People feel powerless to do something about Donald Trump and guns or Boris Johnson and Brexit. But free-range blowjobs? We're going to do something about those. We're going to stamp those out while children starve and the world burns. Because we can. Not because we should. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, Christian Picciolini joins us to tackle a very important question. A caller with a sibling who's drifting into white supremacism and violent white extremism. Christian is a former skinhead turned anti-hate group activist. That's our extended interview on this show. Usually that would be on the Magnum edition of the podcast, but we think everybody who listens to the Magnum but we think everybody needs to hear this interview, so we're putting it on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast. And on the magnum edition of today's Savage Lovecast, Zachary Zane joins us to discuss coming out as a bisexual man. All that, plus tons of your questions on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm a 20-year-old straight guy living in the Midwest, and I've recently come to the realization that on some level, I may be gender fluid. I'm comfortable living as a man in most of my life, um, but on a level that's not just sexual, that I thought was just sexual for a long time, there are times when I want to be a woman and dress like a woman and act like a woman. And my question is, how is this something I pursue? Are there communities for this? Is there some specific distinction of what this desire is of mostly straight men who have the desire to be feminine or be a woman at some times. I thought I was trans for a long time. I'm perfectly comfortable being a man. And I've reached the point where I feel like I need a, a way to identify myself and a community to express this part of me in. Dude, that's how you identify. I'm affirming your gender identity. Dude, you're a cross-dresser. Cross-dressing is a thing and maybe it's a term that's been around for such a long time and if there's anything the queer movement likes to do it's generate brand new terms for age-old things but you're a cross-dresser you're a straight guy who enjoys dressing up as a woman acting as a woman being treated as a woman at certain times for limited amount of times and there are lots of cross-dressers out there in the world if you get on google if you get on twitter you will find other guys like you, guys who are comfortable with their assigned male at birth identities, guys who identify as men, but guys who enjoy for the stress release of it or the eroticism of it or both. And there's nothing illegitimate about cross-dressing for erotic reasons, but not everybody who cross-dresses for erotic reasons only cross-dresses for erotic reasons. A lot of guys find it 
fun, relaxing, interesting, a, a release of, a, of tension, uh, an escape from the performance of masculinity. We talk a lot about the performance of femininity in our cultural discourse, but masculinity is also a performance and it's a stressful one. And I think it's particularly stressful for straight guys. So cross-dressing can be an avenue of release. There's an annual week-long Fantasia Fair in Provincetown for many years, for decades. It was expressly by and for cross-dressers. Now it has grown to encompass transgender people, gender fluid people, but all sorts of different kinds of gender expression. You might want to get your butt to Fantasia Fair in Provincetown, save your pennies and go. But wherever you are in the country, I guarantee you there's a local group of cross-dressing guys who are getting together, who are having social events. And, you know, at the social events, it's not about the sex, not about the eroticism. In the same way that leather guys get together at social events, they're not fucking at that event necessarily. Maybe later, because leather for some people is eroticized at times and other times not necessarily eroticized. But still, you know, something these guys feel they have to do just as you feel you have to do this and not just for sexy time reasons. So congrats. You've worked through this. You've worked it out. You've determined that you're not transgender. I'm not saying congrats, you're not transgender. I'm saying you have come to some understanding of who you are and how this aspect of your gender expression fits into your life and fits into your identity as a man. You are not the first one. You are not alone. There is a big community out there of straight male cross-dressers like you, many of them partnered. And if you get your butt to Provincetown for Fantasia Fair, go to fanfare.info on the worldwide interwebs for more information. You will see lots of guys like you, most of them there with their female partners. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a cisgendered female from the Midwest. And I have a call about my sister uh, who has been sharing with me for the past year that she uh, feels abused by her partner. She'll have long conversations with me where she details experiences of abuse. And these are obviously very disturbing and upsetting to me. And um, then the next day, in a, I think, a pretty typical pattern, she says, no, he's awesome. He's amazing. I love him. Why don't you support me? After I've, you know, asked her to make an exit strategy and, you know, asked her to seek counseling. And so this is very troubling for me. And the the back and forth, the push and pull, um, it's really affecting me a lot emotionally. And um, I'm wondering what you think I can do to both support my sister and continue to support her and listen to her in the way that she needs and protect my own emotions. Because the last time this happened, I was so upset the next day, like I couldn't work. I didn't know what to do. Yeah, I would really love to have your advice. You have my permission not to talk with your sister about this anymore. When she starts in on her partner being abusive and wants to walk you through the abuse, just say to her, I'm very sorry this is going on. You know already what I think you need to do. You need to get out of this relationship. When you want to talk about getting out of this relationship in a real and practical and actionable way, I will be there for you. But I can't listen to these stories and then get the call from you the next day where you tell me not only that you're staying, but that you love him, that he's lovable, he's not all the terrible things that you told me he was 
last night. In a sense, she's gaslighting you about her relationship, and she doesn't have a right to put you through that. You can express your sympathy. You can tell her you support her. You can tell her you'll be there for her when she's ready to go. You can't be her pressure release valve because it's too stressful for you. It's not a role you can play, and it's not a role you are obligated to play. Oh, hi. I just wanted to know, is it normal uh, for every couple to want to explore or even talk about polyamory or open relationships? I mean, I'm a total monogamous, but then, you know, I'm 76, but just wondered. I think it's great if you can do it, but I'm kind of a jealous Sicilian, so I don't know. If you've been listening to the show a lot... Your sample is skewed, just as my sample is skewed. People who are interested in exploring non-monogamy or polyamory, they're going to call with questions about non-monogamy or polyamory. Happily monogamous couples who are feeling no conflict and are generating no conflict in their relationship by raising the subject of non-monogamy or polyamory, they're not going to call. So non-monogamy and polyamory is not indeed normal for every couple, non-monogamous or people who wish to become non-monogamous or people who are curious about polyamory are going to be overrepresented on this program, on really all sex advice, relationship advice programs, all sex and relationship advice columns. The people who are thinking about doing something big and scary and perhaps risky and dangerous and non-normative are the ones who are going to have the kind of stress or the kind of questions that would drive them to pick up the phone and give me a call or send me or Eugene Carroll or somebody else a letter. Monogamy is indeed what most people tell researchers that they want. A lot of people think it's what they want and they make monogamous commitments and then realize after they've made that monogamous commitment that monogamy is not what they want. And then they have to do the hard work of reverse engineering their relationship to allow for some degree of openness. And again, that can generate a lot of conflict and conflict equals calls. All that said, while I do think monogamy is what a lot of people want, it is normal for people who want monogamy, for people who've made monogamous commitments, for people who've had or are in monogamous relationships to experience desire for other people. You, caller, you say you are 76 years old. You say you've been always monogamous all your life. Still, even though you were monogamous and still are presumably monogamous, there had to be times where a waiter – or somebody at the gym, or somebody on the bus, or somebody walking down the street, or somebody you saw in a play caught your eye, and you thought, well, if I weren't in this relationship, if I hadn't made a monogamous commitment, if monogamy weren't so important to me, that might be someone I would be interested in. That's somebody I might be interested in dating, or fucking the shit out of if I weren't in a committed relationship, but I am, so that's not a thought that I'm going to spend much time entertaining. As such, you were well-suited for monogamy and monogamous commitments, and congrats and Yahtzee to you. But the thing that's happening these days, and, and that you may have noticed, is more people are realizing that monogamy needs to be an opt-in. It needs to be a conscious choice that they've made for themselves and for and with their partners, and not just what they were assigned. More people are scrutinizing their assignments, the script that was written for them by family, by religion, by culture, and asking themselves, what will make me happy? What do I want out of and in a relationship? And that can change over time. 
one of the paradoxes of non-monogamous relationships and most non-monogamous people is that they were initially in a monogamous relationship. Most non-monogamous relationships were monogamous at the outset and then were successfully reverse engineered into open or poly relationships. But this is the future sex-positive liberals like me want, a future where people get to make their own choices. And that is a better, safer world for people who want monogamy. Because if people are empowered to choose monogamy or non-monogamy before they make a commitment to someone, you're less likely to wind up with monogamous people or people who are good at monogamy, want monogamy, even if they are still attracted to other people at sometimes, in committed monogamous relationships with people who are not as good at it, not capable of it, people that will not be made happy by being in a long-term monogamous commitment. Those are disastrous situations when you have somebody who's good at monogamy and wants monogamy partnered with somebody who only thought they wanted monogamy and aren't any good at it, and were hustled into making a monogamous commitment because they were told that is what good people want, and that is all good people do. And we all want to think of ourselves as good people, so sometimes we do shit and make choices to be good that aren't actually good for us. Hence this ongoing conversation over the last couple of decades, really, about options, about monogamy. And I think it's a conversation that made the leap from the gay community to the straight community in a very real way because monogamy isn't unheard of in gay land, but it was always a, an active choice, never a default setting. And I think that's where we're headed, that monogamy still a valid choice, maybe even the choice that most people are going to want to make. But in the future, because of this conversation, it's going to be an active choice made by both halves of the couple and therefore likelier to be a successful choice. Hello, Ben. I am a gay man living in, the New in New York City. I'm having a problem. I've met this guy and I've known him for a little bit over a month. In the beginning, it was amazing we connected so wonderfully, but a series of personal setbacks fell on him, unfortunately, and he's become a completely different person. He has issues with family and drinking and that sort of thing. And I feel like I'm, I want to be there for him, but I don't know how to reach him. He just, he seems to vanish. We were so close, and now it seems so far away. I think it's temporary, but I don't know what to do. He's 26, and he's already a divorcee. I'm 28, and he's like the first guy I've ever connected with. I, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm wasting time with this guy because he's so troubled and because the situation is downtrodden, or maybe what I should wait and you know see if things improve and that want to spend time with me again you are not having a problem you have dodged a bullet this guy that you've only known for a month and i get it you make that connection and if it's your first connection whether you're 14 or whether you're 28 you feel it very intensely and you invest a lot of hope and you imagine a future with this person that you've made this connection with particularly your you know first love or first feeling or inkling of love or first super duper crush that's reciprocated in some way and you get very invested in it and then four weeks in when the guy disappears on you or reveals that they have a drug or alcohol problem you're disappointed you're crushed you wish you could fix that guy so he could be the guy that you hoped he was that you imagined he might be but he ain't that guy 
and he's not going to be that guy and you can't fix him and you can't rescue him. Particularly, you've only known him for a month. I promise you can't repair him and you can't make him into the man that you need or hope to have in your life. What you need to do is say to yourself, ah, those feelings I had that I felt for him, that's a good and positive sign for the future. That means I can have those feelings potentially for someone else. It means I'm capable of having those feelings. It means I can meet someone who returns those feelings of affection, where the feelings are reciprocated. Hopefully I can meet somebody in the future who's healthy enough to reciprocate those feelings for longer than four weeks before they go off the rails and disappear on me. So when you say we were so close, that's not true. You weren't. You had a brief and intense affair with someone that you barely knew. You were not close. Doesn't mean you didn't have feelings, but those feelings were again about an imagined future. You invested that in him, that fantasy of a future perhaps together with him. And you invested in him, pushed all your chips into the middle of the table, but you lost the bat. Not because there's anything wrong with you, but because there's something not right with him. He's not in good working order. He's not capable of being in a relationship. You don't even have a way of contacting him. So there's literally nothing you can do except move forward. Not with him, not trying to rescue him, not trying to fix him, but move forward and hope that you will meet another guy and meet someone who is capable of feeling as strongly about you as you now know you are capable of feeling about someone else. You have made this kind of connection. It was brief. You can make a more lasting connection in the future with someone else. Hi, Dan. I'm a queer woman in the Boston area, and I can't believe I'm calling about this issue, um, but I am. I recently got a call from my twin brother's girlfriend that my twin brother has been really involved on some white supremacist sites, um, even emailing the founders of some sites every day, even talking about moving to Florida to be with them. Uh, it's gotten to a point where they are on the verge of breaking up um, and he's most likely going to have to move back home to my parents. So I've been talking with my parents, even though they're rather conservative, they do agree that this is very wrong and we're very worried about him um, and especially the kind of violence that he might inflict on other people. So we have come up with somewhat of a plan for my parents to be somewhat loving and supportive of him, not supportive of his beliefs, because we're so afraid that if we push him away and he doesn't have anywhere to go, that he's just going to move to Florida and get even more extreme and be incited to do violent things. And I'm going to be more of the person asking hard questions of him since he's not reliant on me for a place to live. And I'm the obvious liberal in the family. I've been looking online and I haven't found much in terms of resources or supports to help guide my family on how to address this. I'm almost wondering if it can be potentially a mental health issue that we could have him go into treatment for, um, even if it's against his consent, because I'm sure it will be against his consent. I am a therapist myself, and I'm it doesn't seem that it's at a point where we can do anything like that against his consent. 
So it's just, it's at a point where we're all very worried about it. We are expecting to have them over for uh, a family get together this weekend, which will be really my first time confronting my brother since talking to his girlfriend about this. So we're all quite nervous about it. And we w- would really love to hear from you or any resources you can recommend to help me and my family address this with him. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Christian Picciolini, founder of the Free Radicals Project and author of White American Youth and the forthcoming Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. Hey, Christian, how are you? I'm good, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, thank you for coming on. Now, just to, to, to give some background here before we get to the question, you at a very early age got involved or sucked into or recruited by the, the white supremacist white power movement. And you got organizationally involved. Yeah, um, I was 14 years old in in 1987 when I was uh, recruited into America's first neo-Nazi skinhead group. Uh, I spent eight years uh, as a part of that movement uh, until uh, in 1996 when I was just 23 years old. I found my way out, but it wasn't really until my world kind of crashed around me and, and really injected it with a a lot of confusion and uncertainty that I was able to break away. What do you think made you susceptible as a teenager to the white power movement's call to the propaganda? You know, Dan, I was, yeah, I I came from kind of a normal family. Um, You know, there wasn't any hate uh, as part of my upbringing. You know, it wasn't a racist environment. In fact, my parents are Italian immigrants who came to the U.S. in the mid-60s. And when they came, they were often the victims of, of prejudice. So, it, you know, it really wasn't part of my family DNA. Uh, but, you know, because my parents were immigrants, uh, they had to work hard. Uh, they were gone seven days a week, sometimes 14 hours a day, trying to, to run a small business. And I didn't see my parents very often. And even though I was surrounded by a lot of love and, you know, family members, uh, you know, I really kind of wondered what I had done to push my parents away. So I felt mm-hmm. very abandoned by them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went I went in search for an identity, a community, you know, pillars uh, of what make us who we are and, and what foster almost every decision we make. And, and at 14 years old, I was standing in an alley. I was smoking a joint and this guy came up to me and he pulled the joint from my mouth. And uh, he said that that's what the communists and the Jews wanted me to do to, to keep me docile. And, you know, 14, I didn't know what a communist was. I didn't know what a Jew was. And I didn't even know, know what the word docile meant. But it was <laughs> the first time. And yeah, it's true. It, it was the first time in my life that anybody had paid any attention to me. I was idealistic. I was driven. Uh, but I was isolated. And, you know, I, I bet it was it did fill that that void of identity, community and purpose that you know, I wasn't sure that I had found anywhere else. They sucked me in, just like you said, because it, it, it gave me, it empowered me in ways that kept me blind to the to the damage I was causing. And now instead of looking for directionless young men in alleys smoking joints, white supremacists, bigots, uh, can find these young directionless men in their own homes, in their parents' bedrooms, through their devices, through their computers. We've really created this... You, you know, the Internet has created this access uh, for these kind of uh, these That's kinds right. of bigots and, and people out there recruiting for the white power movement to find disaffected young men more easily. You know, the Internet's brought a lot of good things into our lives, but it's also brought a lot of bad people, in a sense, into our homes. 
what you're describing are what I call potholes, those things that kind of appear in our life's journey that, that detour us, frankly. And potholes can be anything like trauma, uh, can be, you know, uh, struggling with mental health, uh, can be grief or loss of a parent. It can be, you know, divorce. It can be joblessness or poverty or even privilege, uh, which can keep us isolated in a small bubble. And those things, you know, when they appear, you know, in our journey and we can't really fill them in or can't find a way to avoid those obstacles, they detour us to the fringes where there's somebody waiting with, you know, some sort of a a narrative that will fill those voids for us. And usually they, they work to point the blame at somebody else to project your pain. Okay, let's talk about the caller and her issue. I'm sure this is coming up for lots of people all across the country where they have a relative, um, they have a child, uh, they have a sibling, they have an uncle, or they have a friend who has been sucked into this movement, who is moving toward white supremacism, extremism, and may even, as in the case with this caller and her twin brother, uh, seems capable of violence. What do people do? How do you intervene? How do you reach that person in your life with a message that may pull them back? You know, when I listened to the call, it, it, it struck me as you know very familiar because it's, it's similar to most of the emails that I get uh, on a daily basis from people who are horrified at, you know, of a family member, of a loved one, of a boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, and it, you know, really what's important to understand in these situations is that people are not born to hate. They, you know, latch onto those narratives, uh, to fill those voids. So I would want to know deeper what the motivation might be years before, because pre-radicalization to these ideologies, you know, starts the day we're born. Uh, it begins when we hit that first pothole. And then once we find the ideology, it gives us permission then to be angry, to, flash out. So I would want to know more about what the person's journey looked like. Interestingly enough, being a twin is something I see pretty often as well, because there is a, a twin separation anxiety that can develop or, a, you know, a sense of identity that uh, is difficult to establish, um, you know, but it, it could be situational like job loss or, um, you know, environmental um to propaganda mm-hmm. um, you were right when you were talking about marginalized people being online it's there's a there's a critical mass of people who might not be establishing those connections in real life but when they're online they can be whichever persona they want mm-hmm. and is in a way you know we talk about you know political you know right-wing nationals political leaders like you know the fucking president of the united states scapegoating right. you know looking for scapegoats looking for people to blame for the problems that you're having in your life uh or that people are having but what you're saying is that a, a person can hit a pothole and then look around themselves for that explanation for that scapegoat and a lot of people who've hit potholes, particularly young white men right now looking around at that scapegoat or arriving at these white nationalist YouTube accounts, white nationalist websites, interacting with white nationalists on 8chan and and other websites and being, you know, being given an answer for why they're unemployed or why they're disaffected and basically filling in that pothole with, with lies. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's not difficult to step in and, you know, into the, those types of propaganda 
algorithms that just will then feed you with more of that type of propaganda. Um, you know, the internet loves to curate and predict what it is that, you know, we want to see or want to enjoy. Start out by kind of treading into these territories of, of nationalism and far right extremism, and you land on propaganda. Well, you know, it's no surprise that our feeds then will continue to curate that type of content for us, sending us deeper down a rabbit hole. So, what do family do? The girlfriend, you know, the girlfriend reached out to the to the twin sister. She's thinking about breaking up with him, and. In her shoes, I would absolutely probably have broken up with him already, not shaming her. Breaking up is easier to say you should do than to actually do. But the parents, the sister, it sounds like they're going to have an intervention. She's going to speak to him about it. Right. But is it better for him to hit rock bottom, to, to lose his girlfriend, to lose the love and support of his family? Or does the family stay engaged and try to love and support him through this? Or is there just not one right model? You know, it really kind of depends on the temperament of the person. And, and I would say that pushing the person further away is probably not the right answer uh, because some people, obviously, when they hit rock bottom, you know, will lash out against others. And, and we've seen kind of the end result of that with some of these shootings. Uh, you know, I think that they do need to speak with them. I think that they need to be honest and vulnerable and also communicate, um, you know, not in an ideological fashion. It shouldn't be a debate. Because you can't argue with an illogical ideology, you can't win. Um, but I would really try to listen for what the motivation was for him to go in that direction, and then really try and repair those potholes, try and fill them in with, uh, you know, if it's job training because of job loss or mental health uh, counseling because of conditions. And I have to say, you know, certainly mental health uh, disorders don't cause racism or, or violence. Uh, but often people are isolated and lonely and, and bullied and marginalized, and that can push people towards the fringes. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, please consult with a professional uh, on that and, and also, you know, potential therapists for, you know, that can deal with family situations um, without knowing, you know, exactly what the potholes are. Uh, I would say that it's not an ideological thing that led him there. Uh, that was just the ultimate permission for him. It was an emotional uh, response. You know, if there's disability, sometimes uh, people feel like there are no other options if they've hit a wall. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I would examine the potholes and, and really try and fill those in to build his resiliency. And again, you know, the girlfriend can go and probably should go, but the family should stay engaged allow him to live at mom and dad's don't cut him loose and let him wind up in florida but the risks here are grave a lot of white supremacist uh individuals uh, who've engaged in acts of mass violence have first murdered their families have first murdered their own parents or siblings so that's right we don't want to understate the gravity of this situation Right. And I would also, you know, assess the risk involved. I mean, if if she mentioned that, you know, they were worried he may be violent, but are there weapons in the household? Has he made threats before? Can he carry those threats out? Um, but yeah, you know, security and safety, the first issue, if they feel, uh, you know, that it could turn violent, certainly they shouldn't engage. And certainly if, if 
there, you know, is any sort of risk of violence because of weapons, uh, they have a duty to report that. Um, there's something called the Baker Act. Uh, if there is a mental health condition and they worry about, uh, you know, how that might transpire with weapons or anything like that or a state of mind, there is something that they can do against his will. Uh, but I think that that was, should be a last resort. Really examine the risk uh, and the motivations of, of what happened and, and, you know, consult with somebody who's a professional. But it sounded like she was a counselor. So she she really kind of understands how to approach these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because it's a family, it might be you know more difficult. Uh, so it's easier to bring in somebody who's an outsider to do that. So where do you find those resources? What resources would you direct uh, the caller and her family to as they confront this problem? Well, you know, unfortunately, Dan, there's uh, there's kind of a lack of resources in this arena. You know, one, because the administration that's, you know, in the White House now really hasn't focused on it. In fact, they've pulled funding for resources. Um, my organization, the Free Radicals Project, uh, would be willing to help. We don't charge for our services. Um, we're a nonprofit organization. And um, I'm also really concerned about the Florida angle, because if he's talking to folks, uh, you know, who are web uh, masters of, of the sites that are coming from Florida, I'd be concerned about that because there are some pretty dangerous organizations. Uh, groups like Adam Waffen Division are based in Florida. They've been responsible for the murder of at least six people. And there are also a lot of propagandists uh, coming out of Florida that um, you know I consider dangerous as well. So yeah, I, if the caller would like to talk more about it, I'd be happy to speak to her uh, and work with her on it. Christian Picciolini, founder of Free Radicals Project, author of Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism, coming out February 11, 2020 from Hatchet. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. It was a pleasure. Hi, Dan. Um, it's a 22-year-old here from the South, bisexual. So I recently started messaging this girl on her, the lesbian dating site, and we were texting and I told her I don't really have that great of experience with men. And she was telling me that she does have good experience with men and she currently has a boyfriend. And I was like, Oh, are you guys looking for a threesome? Like, I'm not really into that. She's like, no, actually like he doesn't have to be involved sexually or even socially if you don't want. And I was like, Oh, okay. And I was like, so are you guys in an open relationship? And she was like, well, yes, we are. And actually like me and him don't even have sex right now. Cause he's really sick. And then she began to explain to me that, like, he has leukemia and he's bedridden in the hospital. And uh, so he doesn't want her to put her life on hold for him. And today, this morning, we went on a coffee date and she was really nice and really cute. And I really liked her. And she told me that he's okay with her going on dates with people and hooking up with people. And I asked if like he'd be okay with her doing that with a guy. And she said that she wasn't interested in doing things with any other guys. But when I told this to my friends, a lot of my queer friends said that they think that he's only okay with her hooking up with girls because he probably doesn't value the relationship between two women. And I would just want your opinion on that. Also, I wanted your opinion on the entire situation itself. Like, should I feel guilty for hooking up with someone that has a boyfriend that is, in the hospital and has leukemia. I don't know. I've never been in a situation like this. I really like her. I want to pursue this. Like I want to hook up with her, but at the same time, I don't know if I should feel guilty. And I also don't know if he is only okay with this because he doesn't 
value like lesbian relationships. My first thought, and it's not a happy one, is wonder if the boyfriend with leukemia actually exists. Maybe I'm cynical, but I've read too many stories about people on the internet who claimed to have cancer, claimed to be partnered with someone who had cancer in an effort to engender sympathy and to manipulate other people. Now, you met this woman in public. You had a coffee date, and she seemed like a lovely person. Sometimes people who are manipulative shits who lie about stuff you can't imagine anyone but a sociopath lying about to anyone or online or anywhere else are lovely and charming people in person, and it's a part of their grift. Not saying that's the case here. There are people with leukemia who are bedridden, who have partners. They also exist. Just saying, trust but verify. I'm just saying, go in with your bullshit detectors on in any new relationship because sometimes people lie to get what they want. All right. Let's just accept the premise though. Let's say that she has a boyfriend. He has leukemia. He is desperately ill, bedridden, and she is his caretaker and she is seeking other partners outside sexual partners. Is that a thing that people sometimes do with their partner's blessings? Absolutely. And you do not have to feel guilty about it. Indeed, if some intimacy, sex, connection, joy, if she can fit that in with someone else around the margins, that could make her a better caregiver for her ailing boyfriend than she otherwise might be. Caregiving, being the caregiver for someone who is terminally ill is very, very stressful. And people under a lot of stress need some release. We need to get out from under that stress every once in a while. I knew a lot of guys in the 80s and 90s whose boyfriends, all of them boyfriends at the time, never husbands because that was not yet possible for us, whose boyfriends were ill and dying and who, usually with the ill and dying boyfriend's blessing, had sex occasionally with other people. And the other people that they had sex with were doing God's fucking work. They were providing those guys who were taking care of their partners, whose relationships with their intimate and sometimes formerly sexual partners had shifted from romance and sex and intimacy and connection to caregiver, which is another kind of intimacy and connection, but, but not a sexual or romantic one. And a little bit of sex outside the relationship with their ailing boyfriend's blessings was itself a blessing. And you could be the blessing this girl needs. As for your queer friends... Fuck them. Are they omniscient? How did they read the guy with leukemia's mind? I'd like to know exactly how they perform that function. She told you that she is only interested in having sex with other women at this time. I would look at your friends and say, you know, what happened to believe women? What happened to believe queer women? What happened to respecting a woman's sexual agency? Why do you assume this woman is being ordered around by her boyfriend in order to stay off dick by her boyfriend or that he doesn't somehow respect lesbian relationships or same-sex relationships between women if he is fine with her having sex with other women in a relationship, a, a romantic connection with another woman? How is that ipso facto on its face disrespectful? Yeah, get better queer friends, get more emotionally intelligent queer friends. Get yourself some queer friends who aren't projecting 
their hangups or their insecurities about the legitimacy of same-sex relationships onto the male partners of bisexual women who are seeking same-sex relationships. What your queer friend said was pretty bucked up. But again, circling back to my cynical advice at the top, verify somehow, draw her out about her relationship, draw her out about her boyfriend, because there are a lot of people online who lie, and sadly, there are people online who lie about just this sort of thing to manipulate others into eating their pussy or sucking their dicks. Hi, Dan. This is a 31-year-old woman living on the West Coast. I have an interesting housemate dilemma here. I moved into a shared housing situation with wonderful people. I do work from home sometimes. The house has no sound privacy whatsoever. We've all laughed about it. We are all aware about it. We all try to keep it down for one another. Hasn't been an issue except recently when one of my housemates decided um, she will be bringing people home and um, having sex with them. She informed us of this. We're all supportive of her getting her needs met. I'm personally a very sex positive person. Everything was great until the noise level of the sex became a problem. It has woken me up at night during my sleep, which was very difficult. It was very loud and blatant first thing in the morning once. This last recent time was extremely loud. Came in with someone, introduced me to this person. I was clearly sitting, doing work, engaged in focusing. And uh, the sex was so loud that I had to get off a work phone call and I could not find a place in the house where there was not their background noise sex. So I did try to talk to her about it recently. It did not go well at all. She got very defensive. Um, I tried to reiterate that I was not shaming her for having sex or bringing people back to the house, that it was simply a noise issue. Her stance was very clear and very strong that she is the right to have sex whenever and with whoever and that it's not her fault. Our house is loud. Um, it did not go well. And I'm very, very sad about it. It feels disrespectful at this point. She basically will not budge. She said she's going to stand her ground on this one, that if it feels good, she's just going to go ahead and do it and be loud because she's naturally a loud sexual person. I don't know what to do. I'm leaning towards moving out. Um, There's also a couple that's been living with us, and I've never overheard the couple having sex. They have been um, considerate. They've been mindful that they live with others and that the house has no sound privacy, pretty much. And I just find it very striking that (laughs) this is the situation. So, Dan, I want to be patient, and I want to be sensitive to everybody's needs. But is it strange that I'm being kind of ousted out of my own house whenever this person wants to bring someone home to fuck? Am I forced to sit in any common space and have to deal with this or to get off a work phone call in fear of the background noise creeping in? Help me out, Dan. I want to be decent and patient, but kind of at my wit's end here. On the one hand, I'm kind of with you. I don't want to listen to roommates in a roommate situation have sex i would have more of an issue in a shared group home with a roommate constantly bringing basically strangers over you know i think 
it is considerate, however loud you are when you have sex, if you're going to bring someone into a group home, if you're going to bring someone into a shared space where they could wander into someone else's bedroom in the middle of the night or encounter someone in a shared space like a bathroom or a kitchen, that this person is trusted, that you vetted this person to some extent, that you have a good sense of whether they could be trusted in these shared spaces and they're not going to do something crazy or abusive or rapey in the middle of the night to one of your roommates when they're vulnerable. So my issue, if I were you, would be the strangers being walked into and walked through the house. But not so much the loud fucking. People have a right to fuck in their bedrooms. You know, one of the reasons you get a cave is so you can fuck in that cave. And if somebody in the next cave over can hear you, well... As they sang in Avenue Q, you can be as loud as the fuck you want when you're making love. And it comes to an end. It does stop. Presumably she's not doing some tantra nonsense and coming for three hours. You know, she fucks for 15 or 20 minutes, half hour, 45 minutes tops, and it ends. You know, you put some headphones on and you blast some music and you get some work done that doesn't require a call. Or if sound privacy is really important to you, you prioritize that when you're searching for a living space or your next living space. You get your own apartment, but, you know, I get calls all the time from people who have their own apartments because people are fucking loudly upstairs, downstairs, or, uh, you know, across the air shaft from them and they can hear everything. It is always a risk. We are social animals. We clump up in urban environments. We share living spaces. We're always at risk of having to overhear other people fucking. You lucked out with the roommates you've got now because however they fuck, it's quiet. Maybe it's infrequent. Maybe it's non-existent. Maybe they're in one of those sexless relationships. But you're not always going to luck out in that way. So knowing that other people's sex noises bother you, find your own space, find your own place with thick walls or find a shared living environment that has good sound privacy, that has Thick walls and the communal spaces are far from bedrooms, but still, bring your headphones because every once in a while, in a shared space, you are going to have to listen to your roommates getting it on. Hi, Dan. I am calling because I'm a 50-something hetero cis progressive feminist in the Pacific Northwest, and I'm working on being more sex positive. And I'm calling because I'm having trouble reconciling two ideas, and I'd like to hear your perspective on this. On one hand, I'm working on being more sex positive, as I said, and I believe in self-determination and supporting those who work in the porn and the sex work industry. On the other hand, I feel kind of squeaky about the objectification of women in porn, and I know that sometimes women are exploited in those industries. So how do I reconcile those two ideas? How can a feminist responsibly watch porn without that squeaky feeling? So let's take these one at a time. Sex work, porn. Not everybody who does sex work does porn and vice versa. There are people who are exploited in sex work. We've talked to many sex workers on this program, many sex work activists. Large organizations like Amnesty International now recognize that if you're concerned about people who are being exploited – doing sex work, then you should be for the decriminalization of sex work. Decriminalizing sex work makes it easier for people who are being exploited to exit sex work, to get the help they need to go to the authorities without fear of being prosecuted themselves if indeed they are being exploited. 
Also, there's a lot of economic exploitation in sex work. There are people who are choosing to do sex work because they feel they have no other options. Not a great reason to choose to do sex work. I know people who choose to do sex work because they love sex and they love the kind of life that brings them where there are lots of different people cycling in and out of their lives. And a lot of them are basically therapists. They connect with people, not just sexually, but emotionally. And they are, many of them, healers who fuck their clients healthy. But there are people who end up doing sex work because they're under economic duress, because they can't feed their kid, because they can't pay their rent, because they don't have health insurance. They're in desperate straits. Well, if you want to make sure that there are fewer people doing sex work for that wrong reason, economic duress, universal basic income, socialized medicine, more and better housing options for people, free universal daycare. There's a lot of ways that are not really the bank shots that they sound like where you can help people who are doing anything under economic duress that depresses them. They're working in a chicken slaughtering plant. They're flipping burgers. They're doing what they're sticking with some job that they hate that makes them miserable because they are dependent on the healthcare plan they have through that job to take care of their sick kid or whatever else it is. So yeah, you want to do something about people who are doing sex work because they're being coerced or they're under duress. They're being exploited by some fucking asshole decriminalization. That's how you help those people. Decriminalization will help those people who are being exploited in that way exit sex work. And economic justice will help people who are doing sex work for that wrong reason, because they are under duress economically, exit sex work. As for porn, there are people who are doing porn for the wrong reasons. There is a lot of porn out there that is made for angry men. And not just angry straight men, also angry queer men, you know, there is this weird push-pull in porn where the viewer, some of them, the significant percentage of them, desire this person in the video, this person that they're watching, and know in the back of their minds that this person, this conventionally attractive or hot person, would never sleep with them. And then that just, it, it, it creeps into porn, where there's the object of your desire, but also the sense that that object of your desire is disgusted by you and then that really tips over, it curdles into this desire on the part of many porn viewers to see the object of their desire punished and suffer in a way that's not fun for the object of desire. That's not the point. And I know in talking to young people, talking to my son about porn, I've warned people, talking to college students about porn, to be on guard for that because it is present in a lot of mainstream porn, that anger, and you don't want to succumb to that anger that's in porn for people who can't get laid because you know what that anger does? If you succumb to it subconsciously, if you just drink it in without being critical, without viewing porn critically, it makes you the kind of person that nobody wants to have fucking sex with. All that said, there is a lot of feminist porn out there, including feminist porn that sometimes represents power exchange kinds of sexual scenarios that arouse many women. Read Tristan Taramino, follow Erica Lust, follow Jiz Lee on Twitter. You will find your way to feminist porn producers, to feminist porn stars who are writing their own scripts, who are making their own films, who are enacting their own fantasies or or creating films that represent other people's fantasies that are produced in ethical ways and that you can enjoy without guilt. 
Hey Dan, mid twenties guy here, high curious. Been in a relationship with my fiance for five years. We've been engaged for two. I would say that we've had trouble with our sex life since we got together. We had a child very early in our relationship. We've had a lot of troubles over the years, but we've seen therapy and seem to kind of get over some of our problems. But regarding our sex life, it definitely hasn't always been the best. I've got several questions, but first we'll start with her. She she doesn't really enjoy sex, I don't think. I feel like she does it more just to please me so I don't ask for it. I used to be the one to always initiate it, but I was always shut down, so I pretty much give up on that. I just let her initiate it, and we go from there. The only way that she can come is if after we have sex, she's got a vibrator that has a suction cup vibrator dildo that she puts on her clit, and that's the only way she can get herself off. I've tried everything that I know. I've researched. I've asked her anything I can. I've tried, and I just can't get her off. And she seems very content with that. That I don't really like that aspect of it, but I think it's just something I'll have to live with. But one way that I can always get her off is if we have anal sex. If I do her anally, she comes very quickly, very hard, hard enough to wake the neighbors up. She always feels really bad afterwards and says that she hated it. What can I do to take the shame out of her having anal sex or to possibly be able to give her the orgasms that she can give me. My second question is, she has pegged me before in the past, which was great, I loved it, and I've had some bi-curious thoughts all of my life, and then after she started doing that a couple times, it really kind of lit a fire, and I've kind of wanted to try some stuff with a guy, and she has always asked me to do stuff with other guys, and she watches gay porn and stuff. She's always said that I'm going to come home one day, and she is going to have a guy there waiting for me to have sex with him. I don't really like that idea because the type of guy that she likes to see in porn is not really the kind of guy that I'm interested in doing anything with, and I'm not sure that my first time with a guy I want her sitting there watching. What do I do, Dan? I really feel like I want to try and do something with a guy for my first time on my own without her watching, but I don't really know how to tell her because I feel like this is more of a fantasy to her than something she's really wanting to do. And I think our biggest issue that we have is she has a lot of shame around sex. She's had a very Christian upbringing, and I think she just really feels very shameful about sex. She does enjoy sex. She is, as you pointed out, conflicted about it because of her Christian upbringing. I would recommend you get your hands on a copy of The Ultimate Guide to Anal Sex for Women, second edition by Tristan Tarmino, who I mentioned earlier on the show. Your wife needs to know that there are other women out there like her who enjoy anal sex. And there may be a physiological reason why it works so well for her, why it makes her come so hard and come so reliably. First, there's the psychological dimension of it, which can't be discounted. That said, the clitoris is not just the glands, the exposed part that 
you can see, that she can see, that you have attempted through play to get her off by stimulating that that vibrator with the suction cup is actually capable of getting her off by providing an intense level of stimulation that your fingers or tongue couldn't. The clit extends back into the body, into her body. There's a clitoral shaft or these wings. If you look at a model of all that clitoral tissue, it looks like a kind of alien jet fighter. And those wings, the clitoral roots, they engorge with blood. And it is as important to her clit as the shaft of your cock is to you. And there are some guys out there. You watch guys masturbate. Some guys are just stroking the head of their dick, sort of really grinding on it. And other guys are just stroking their shaft and not paying too much attention to the head of their dick. And those are both perfectly legitimate ways for guys to get off. Some guys need a lot on the glands, a lot right on the head. Some guys need a lot of stim on the shaft, not so much on the head. Both guys come. Same is true for many women. Some women, stimulation to the clit doesn't quite do it for them. They need the shaft stimulated. And a vibrator can send sensations deep enough into the body to stimulate her shaft. Something else that clearly works for your wife that stimulates her clitoral shaft possibly is anal intercourse. Those roots go deep and the, the rectum, the anal cavity, it, they can be wrapped around it, adjacent to it. And the pressure you're putting on her backside may be hitting her shaft, her clitoral shaft, in the same way that the guy who when he strokes himself, when he's getting off, it's all about the shaft, Maybe working in the exact same way for her. A lot of people have that problem your wife has where she does the sort of transgressive sex thing that really works for her, that turns her on, that she may not fully understand why works for her, why turns her on so much. She may not know this about her own body, about her own clit and how large and complicated an organ it actually is. And she has this thundering orgasm because of combo platter most likely of both of those things, the psychological dimension, the transgressiveness of it, what it means to be this dirty girl who's having butt sex, but also the physiological fact of it providing more stim for her clit and after the orgasm, which transported her and the arousal, that plateau you're on before you get to the point where you're going to come, reality comes crashing back in. And that's when shame comes back in. Arousal overrides disgust. That's why people can eat each other's asses. Arousal <laughs> overrides disgust. It also overrides, for many people, shame. And arousal dissipates. Usually drops off a lot faster and harder for men than it does for women because women are capable of having more than one orgasm. A woman can stay sexually engaged and stay aroused. But apparently your wife is not like the average woman. She's above average. She's unique. Unfortunately, it means that after her orgasm, she experiences that same kind of drop off, that crash that many men experience. I have been in your shoes where it was gay shame having sex with some guy, having gay sex with some guy I didn't know very well, and the sex was great, and he was really turned on, and the minute he came, he was devastated by the terrible, disgusting, homosexual thing that he had just done with me. And it sucks to be that other person in the room at that time because you feel like you've done something terrible, like you've done something wrong, like you not harmed that person willingly or intentionally or maliciously, but you were a tool that person picked up and kind of harmed themselves. And it sucks. And it's not fair of your wife to put you in that position again and again and again and again. Your wife needs to work on her shame. Your wife needs to work through the legitimacy of her desires and how her body works. And you need to respect how her body works. 
most women require intense, focused, direct clitoral stimulation in order to get off. And the clit, again, is not just the glands, not just on the outside. Intense, focused clitoral stimulation wherever she needs to be stimulated on her clit. And your wife obviously needs deep clit stim. The vibrator can give her that deep clit stim. That vibrator that's sucking on her clit is delivering sensations deep into her body, not just to the glands. And your dick in her butt gives her that deep clit stim. She knows how her body works. She knows what gets her there. You do too. That is such an advantage. So you need to grieve, mourn, and let go of this desire to make her come yourself. You are making her come by allowing her to use that vibrator, by not being a dick about it, by not being an insecure bag of slop about it, and by giving her the anal sex she needs and wants and enjoys at those moments that she desires it. Now you just need to hold her hand a little bit through the shame of it and working through it and getting past it. Your first time with a guy, be honest, be direct. My first time with a guy, I want to be alone. Maybe you can cut a deal with her where there's something in it for her still. Maybe your first time with a guy, that guy would be willing to take a couple of pictures or make a short video for the wife that she can enjoy later. And you can work up to having sex with a guy in front of her. And she can't pick the guy. She can't surprise you with the guy. That wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be wise. You wouldn't want to go through with it because some guy was standing there and you want to hurt his feelings or you want to hurt your wife's feelings. So take that off the table. Say, you know that me coming home and there's some other guy here and I have to have sex with him. That's a fun fantasy. That's fun to think about. That's not a fantasy that would work in reality. We can dirty talk about that and think about that. Maybe one day when I find a guy that I'm into that I'd like to play with and I get to play with a couple times on my own, we can role play that where I come home and pretend to be surprised and pretend not to know him, but already have a rapport with him and have established an attraction to him so that I do want to have sex with this guy in front of you. Yeah. You need to have that conversation with your wife and be really honest. And that may mean walking back a commitment you've already made to her to go through with this fantasy. Respect her fantasy, honor her fantasy, affirm it. That is indeed hot. Me coming home, there being some guy there and me having to get, having or getting to have sex with that guy in front of you. Hot fantasy. In reality, I would balk. In reality, I don't think that would work for me. So let's not set that up because that's just stuff, you know, I guarantee you that's not going to work and then you're going to feel bad. He's going to feel bad. I'm going to feel bad. But let's Work toward realizing that fantasy in role play down the road after I've had sex with the guy a few times so that it works for all of us and gets all of us off, you included. Hi, Dan. 41-year-old man um, outside of New York City. I've kind of been slowly, very slowly unpacking the fact that I'm I'm not a straight man. For a long time, I just said heteroflexible. Um, and as I get older, I think it, it's more, more, more bisexual or, or pansexual. I, I was wondering what are some, some good resources reading about this? I, I came from a, a family where this was, ex- you know, my parents were extreme homophobes. Um, they're, they're both past now. My, my brothers are not too much better. Um, I don't need their approval. Um, and I'm fine if they, they don't approve. I don't, I don't personally give a shit. My, my ex-wife is extremely supportive. Um, and, and we raise a, a son co-parenting who, uh, you know, we, we, we raised to, to love everybody equally. Um, and that nobody is undeserving of that. I actually just picked up the velvet rage from Alan Downs because I, I think that I might be able to relate to, to certain parts of it, especially about the part of like 
feeling unlovable. But if there's any other resources that you could point me to, that that would be amazing. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Zachary Zane is a writer whose work focuses on sex, cannabis, lifestyle, and the LGBTQ community. He's currently an editor at Men's Health and writes a queer cannabis column at Civilized. Hey, Zachary, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Uh, good, good. So you're a bi guy. Sure am. <laughs> and, and you face that down, coming out as a bi guy. What resources are out there for this bi guy as he comes out? Yeah, so there are a bunch of different resources. First, I would uh, check out bisexual.org. Um, first of all, they just have articles about uh, everything. So um, understanding maybe some internalized biphobia that you have, how to come out to your family members as by how to find a larger bi community. Um, pretty much everything by there's an article on that. So I think that's one of the a great places to start. Also, um, Robin Oaks, who's like considered the mother of modern bisexuality, uh, edited this book with Dr. Uh, Haragudi. I've never actually said his name out loud, but um, it's called Recognize the Voices of Bisexual Men. It's an anthology. And it just shares the stories of like 60 different bisexual men in various different ways. And when I read it personally, it really helped me kind of come to grips with a lot of the things I didn't even realize I was struggling with as a bi man. And just hearing all these stories, hearing how they overcame these obstacles made me feel really, um, really understood. So I think those are uh, two good resources right there. I know he said he uh, lives outside New York, so I'm not sure exactly where that is. There's also the New York Area Bisexual Network, and they have events going on often, uh, just meetups, kind of about everything, whether it's just like a social fun group meetup or something a little bit more serious where you can like discuss your trauma that you've experienced. They have that, and the best way to find them is actually through Facebook, which they keep active. Because I went before and I kind of went on their site and I saw that that hadn't been updated in a while. But if you uh, follow them on the New York Area Bisexual Network, you can see all these fun events that are kind of going on within the larger New York uh, area. So I, I'm a huge fan of Robin Oaks and it's sort of um, a digression from the, the caller's question, the problem. And what I'm always citing from her is that definition of bisexuality. I call myself bisexual because I acknowledge that I have in myself the potential to be attracted romantically and or sexually to people of more than one sex and or gender, not necessarily at the same time, not necessarily in the same way and not necessarily to the same degree. I think that is the best currently operating definition of bisexuality out there. And it encompasses so many people. Like what I often encounter when I talk to people about bisexuality or hear from people who are struggling with that term is they don't feel legitimately bisexual because they aren't equally attracted to all genders or men and women. And they feel disqualified from being bisexual. And that's why I love Robin Oaks and her work and that definition in particular. It's it really helped heal so many people uh, who were bi, who didn't know how to identify or didn't feel entitled to it. And I, yeah, I think in not only breaking, it's like 50, 50 um, myth that you have to be equally attracted, whatever that means. I think also her definition allows for, for your attractions to change over time, which I really like. Mm. That's one thing where I'll find myself really much more attracted to women at some point where I'm only dating women. And then I'll find myself like significantly more attracted uh, to men for whatever the reason and even now where I, I really don't date women because my lifestyle is so gay and that I like going to gay bars, I have LGBT, I write about LGBTQ topics. I do all these quote unquote gay things that I'm not really meeting too many straight women. And if I do this straight woman, how am I going to take her 
the Eagle, which I like going to on Friday night. <laughs> well, straight so women even, wait, 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 and bi women. You could meet bi women too in New York City. Absolutely, they're out there. And actually, I no, of course. And I've dated. Well, regardless of straight or bi, just take maybe a cis woman to the Eagle. But like, I've definitely since I've come out, uh, who I've dated seriously in terms of women have all been bi or pan. Awesome. Uh, and I don't think that's an accident. Uh, quickly, yeah. uh, uh, before we leave him, uh, the brothers. He's got intensely homophobic and homophobia and biphobia are kind of, you know, in the same basket. Intensely homophobic brothers, you know, parented by his intensely homophobic parents. And he's worried he may lose them by coming out to them as bi. And that's a price you have to be willing to pay to be yourself. That's the lesson of being queer at all from all queer people everywhere is you might lose fam. Yeah, and it seems like he, he would be okay with that, even though um, not ideal. And he's lucky enough to have this wife who supports him unconditionally and they're co-parenting their child together and they're teaching and seems their child such good values. But it's it's something, and I mean, I'm, I'm stealing language from you, from listening <laughs> you all the time. But, you know, if you want to have, you know, a real authentic relationship with someone, you have to come out with them. And it's better than having, you know, this fake relationship where you can't, be yourself um right. but it seems like he's open and willing to lose them and he has some other supportive people in his life and, and that's the, so important and the paradox is if you are open and willing to lose them you're likelier to gain them or keep them or for them to come around once they sense they can't control you with their disapproval and that you're ready and willing to just cut them out of your life then they often reassess their bigotry because they can't control you with it they can't shame you with it they you know you won't edit yourself to to to, to please them and you're willing to walk away and that can bring the homophobe or the biphobe around quickly before we let you go um you have a new project it's the hashtag we need a button campaign near the ambassador can you tell us about it yes thank you so much so uh kind of in short it's this call for like patient matching sites like think like zocdoc to include a button or filter that lets queer people know that the provider is queer friendly and up to date on LGBTQ related issues like PrEP, anal pap smears, hormone replacement therapy, and all that type of stuff. And the, the reason kind of behind this campaign is just um, queer people have terrible experiences in healthcare settings. And it was an experience that I experienced a couple of years ago when I moved to New York where the doctor refused to prescribe, to prescribe me PrEP because, A, he didn't know what it was. And this was like 2017. He had oh no idea what God. it was. And then he said, I, I honestly think I saw like campaigns on the bus on the way to see that doctor, mind you. But anyway, he didn't know what it was. And then he said, because I'm bi, I shouldn't need to take it anyway because I could just sleep with women. And I was like, what the hell? This is ridiculous. And I left the office like in tears. I didn't know what to do. So we're having people that we need a button campaign. That's the idea behind it. And then also having people take these belties, these cute pictures of their butts, post it on social media with the hashtag. We need a button and share an experience <laughs> in a healthcare setting where, where they experience discrimination. Cause I realized in doing this project that nearly all of us have experienced something negative, whether it's outright discrimination, ignorance, or just like these smaller microaggressions. Um, so that's what we're doing. Trying to get a, Queer people better access to LGBTQ healthcare. And when you say we are doing this, what's the org behind it? Yeah, so it's with two things. One of them is called Waxo.com, which is a small positive, like a, a small a sex positive online magazine. And then also Dating Positives, which is a dating website for people who uh, have positive STI um, diagnoses. So I, I think this is going to be crucially important, especially if the Department of Health and Human Services under Donald Trump comes through with this new policy that allows 
medical professionals to refuse to treat LGBTQ people if they object for religious reasons, you know, to our not dying on the floor in their office. And so we need the button campaign in a climate where medical professionals are empowered to discriminate against us is crucial, is so necessary. So necessary. And and the responsibility really shouldn't be on the marginalized people to find doctors. I mean, doctors should be serving everyone, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like under Trump, they they might have access to actively discriminate, but it just makes it so much easier uh, just to find someone just through a button. That's all we're asking. Like, it really isn't a difficult thing, but it can change the lives of so many people. I always think of the people who live outside of New York City. Like, I was able to find a queer-friendly doctor after after this experience because I had queer friends here especially if you live, if you're closeted, if you live somewhere where it's large of a gay or queer community, um, where you have less an inaccurate education to LGBTQ healthcare, like this is so important and such an easy fix that can be done. So we're working with a bunch of different partners who are going to start sponsoring us and then also being more vocal and active about it. And we've already started talking to some of these patient matching sites to see if we can help move them along a little bit here. Zachary Zane, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. Look for his stuff in Men's Health and the Queer Cannabis column at Civilized. Thanks again, Zach. Thank you so much, Dan. Hey, Dan. My dad married a woman who was never never okay that he had three children, and she did her best to drive a wedge in the relationship he had with my two older sisters and myself. They had three children of their own, and five years ago, my dad died, and when he died, my stepmother made sure that we got nothing, like not even a memory of his. We got nothing, no money, no clothing, no pictures, no anything. And then she took my niece's college account that my dad had made for her, that every year for Christmas and her birthday, he contributed to a college fund and she cashed it out. So that brings us to now the present there is a big family reunion coming next month and my sister is having anxiety attacks. She is having nightmares about my stepmother coming to this event, which I don't know why my stepmother is coming to this event. She is now in a new relationship and this is all my dad's family that she is coming to this event. And um, I guess my question is, you know, do I have a right to say to her, you can't come to this? Is it wrong of us to tell people what she did? Because I feel like what she did was so awful. And for her to come to this family event is stressful. And I don't think she should have a right to come. Put it all in an email and send it to everyone. Or put it all in a long post and make it live on Facebook. The kind of person who would treat you the way your stepmother has treated you is the kind of person who is capable of telling enormous lies. She may lie about your father. She may lie about how your father felt about you kids. She may lie about shit that she says that you did that caused you to become estranged from your father, caused your father to cut you out of the will in the way that he did. She may lie and you have to be braced for that. In fact, you should say in your letter, your Facebook post, your giant email, your giant Facebook post, that you anticipate that she will lie in this way, potentially, considering all of the terrible things that she's already done. She's certainly capable of lying her fucking ass off. You should say in this email, you are not coming to this family reunion if this person is invited to this family reunion. This person attempted to destroy 
your father, the, the, a member of this family's relationship with his three children. And if you are important to this family, she will not be there. And she will not be invited. And the invitation that was sent to her in ignorance, not in malice, but in ignorance, needs to be withdrawn. And if it isn't withdrawn, then you will regard it as an invitation sent to her in malice. Malice for you. Malice for your siblings and their children, who she stole from. Tell the fucking truth and let the chips fall where they may. Whatever documentation you have, include that in your post. Include that in your email. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some tweets. Said dog tweets, hey, at fake Dan Savage, tell the father of the 16-year-old bi kid to get his son vaccinated against HPV. It's among the safest and most effective interventions we have. Completely agree. CDC recommends the HPV vaccine for all kids, boys and girls starting at age 11. If you weren't adequately vaccinated, the CDC recommends going and getting the HPV vaccine up until age 26. Gay men 26 and older should also get the HPV vaccine. You know what? Everyone should just go get the HPV vaccine regardless of age. That's not the CDC's recommendation. That is my recommendation. CX Beaver tweets, Hey Dan, the bi woman with the cheating slash no Instagram photos of her boyfriend said he hadn't gone down on her once in the seven months of their relationship. That alone is a DTMFA offense. Completely agree. Should have flagged that myself. And finally, Skeptical Who tweets, I was almost done listening to all the back episodes of the Savage Lovecast when they disappeared from Apple Podcasts. What gives? I feel I will never be truly complete without them. Oh, I'm so sorry you feel incomplete. Here's how you can feel complete again. With a micro subscription to the Savage Lovecast, you get access to a full year's worth of micro Savage Lovecast, including today's. With a Magnum subscription, you can subscribe to the Savage Lovecast at www.savagelovecast.com. You get access to every single Savage Lovecast ever produced going back to the very first episode 13 years ago. That's 13 years worth of Savage Love. And of course, the Magnum shows now are longer. They have no ads and more guests. You can subscribe for a month, six months, or a year, again, at savagelovecast.com. And while you're a subscriber, you can download as many episodes as you want while you have your subscription. So, Skeptical Who, you do not have to feel incomplete any longer. You just have to go to savagelovecast.com and subscribe, and you will be complete again. All right, here are your response calls. This is to the caller in episode 668 that was worried about their relationship kind of reaching a dull point and moving on like she's done in the past. Uh, Dan, I think you did a great job addressing that, yeah, it could be boredom. It definitely could be that as an issue. And I think, like, sexual adventures and all those types of things are a really great idea. However, I think that there should have been some encouragement for some non-sexual adventures. Um, for instance, going on a trip, trying some new restaurants. There's all kinds of things that you can do that help spice up your relationship that are non-sexual that can lead to sexual things. Hi, I'm calling regarding the sleep sex guy. Have you ever considered motion sensor recording the episodes and then you could play it together in the morning and you could rehash it together and experience the fun. Hi Dan, I'm calling about the man who talked about how his husband initiates sex in the middle of the night and doesn't remember it. I just wanted to let that man know that it is normal that he and his partner are not alone. My partner does this all the time. He never remembers it. We just have a good time and laugh about it. Uh, I certainly, certainly really enjoy the laughing inhibitions. Uh, you guys are not alone. Just enjoy. It's really fun. 
All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Tickets are on sale now for the premiere of the 15th annual Hump. The Hump Film Festival will open in November in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and this year, Vancouver, BC at the same time. See the new films and get to vote for your favorites and give the Hump Awards. It's a whole new lineup of great indie, amateur, dirty, and very creative porn films. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now to get tickets for the premiere of the 15th Annual Hump in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and for the first time ever, Vancouver, BC. And of course, the 15th Annual Hump will then go off on tour all across North America after the opening festivals in those cities. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Zachary Zane on Twitter at Zachary Zane. And follow Christian Picciolini at C-P-I-C-C-I-O-L-I-N-I. That's C-Picciolini. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. 